All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. How are you doing? Hey, can we thank our worship team? What a great way to get us started. Christmas season. And uh, they've got a couple more songs today, so don't be afraid. It's like, man, Todd, you're up way early today. And it's like, no, it's all right. I'll be back. Uh, but just great, great stuff with this Christmas season. I want to welcome you to Christmas. We love Christmas around here, and you can tell the decor all over the campus and here and the songs we've chosen today and even our series. You're here today for the beginning of a new Christmas series called Intersections. I'll tell you about that a little bit more in just a second. But let's do a couple things. In your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like these if you want to get those out. That'll help you track with us as well as uh, in your uh, home groups this week, be able to have some of the prompts for a discussion. Also, if you have a Bible today, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is at the very back of your Bible. First and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. So maybe look back there, find your way to chapter one. Hebrews might not be the book you always think of when it comes to Christmas. And so today we'll kind of show you, I think it's absolutely essential and a huge, huge part of our, our Christmas understanding. So I'm excited to, to look at that with you today. I had a great time last night. I got to take my daughter and her friend Maria to the Redlands Christmas Parade. I love it. It was so good. I want to apologize. Some of you were on floats or in the parade and I was yelling at you. Now, only good things. I'm like, hey, and you're looking at me like, I don't know that crazy person, you know? So, so if I offended or if you were wondering, that guy at the end wearing a hat and glasses, who, that's me. That was me. And uh, I just absolutely loved it. Just felt this great sense of community and uh, just kicking off the Christmas season. So we're really glad for those we got to see uh, being there and about. Do me a favor, take a look at your Trinity this week, flip it over to the back. I want to bring your attention to something, along with the elders and the pastors, something that has been a trend that I just want to make sure you're aware of. One thing that we do every month, first Sunday of every month, is we publish where we're at financially. There's nothing new about that. And if you look on the back, you'll note that basically at our projected giving expectation going into December, we're behind. We're about $80,000 behind. And I say that today really for this, not in a case of an alarm, but more of a case of making you aware. And like I said, that material is available every month. You could have looked on the back and noticed for yourself. But I want to encourage you with a couple things as we move forward. The first one is this, that if you're currently a part of Trinity's giving uh, community, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for giving and being generous. If this is something, if maybe Trinity's become your home church, but yet maybe giving was something that hasn't kind of caught up to that part of the commitment, I would just encourage you, this is a great time to start. And finally this, I would just say as we trust God, and it's been great, the conversations I've had the last two weeks about just kind of where we're at, our state, it's been great the conversations with pastors and with elders is saying, you know what, at the end of the day, it's always what God does and always the way he provides. So my encouragement for all of us is to say, God, how you're going to work, how we're going to rely and depend upon you for your provision, that's the posture we want to stay in. Let me even say something to that. You just heard these amazing ministries that we are, along with others, that we're planning on supporting. Our Advent Conspiracy giving is kind of on pace. It's a little behind, but it's doing well. Just know that's not in question if we're going to do Advent Conspiracy this year. We're absolutely doing that. That's never come up as a possibility because we love the way that we know that when we're generous, God blesses that. And that's really what Advent Conspiracy is, is a special offering that we're giving away to ministries and just and different uh, groups around the world and seeing God bless that. So I just want to make you aware of that so you can be in the know as we anticipate uh, this month of December. 
Well, let's dive in. We're looking at a series we're calling Intersections, and, and what we're going to see uh, throughout this series is that we're going to see at Jesus' arrival, at Jesus' advent, there are things that come together that you wouldn't have normally thought. You wouldn't have normally put those two in the same breath, and yet we're going to see these types of realities. And at the end of the day, the reason we called it intersections is that we're seeing that we're our greatest need met with God's greatest love. This is the intersection at Christmas. That's when this incredible gift of God's one-of-a-kind son, he enters into our humanity, enters into human history, and he ends up being our savior. So this is why we celebrate this season with just such great robust energy is because of what it means. Now, it's an interesting thing. The Christmas narrative hasn't changed in 2,000 years. There's still a baby that's born in a stable in Bethlehem. There's still teenage parents who are watching all of this. Well, the mom actually more engaged than the dad and watching, but that's all going on. There are still shepherds out in a the field. There's still angels that come and sing to them. All of that is still happening, but our process is this. Though the narrative hasn't changed, when you think of where you were a year ago being reminded, maybe for a whole month just like this, of this Christmas story, your life has changed. You're in a different place. Circumstances have changed, and that's the beauty of getting to look at this Christmas story in an annual kind of month-long format as we get to once again, though the story may be well-known to us, how it intersects with our lives, where we're at today, that's always changing. And so I'm grateful to get to dive into this a little bit with you today. Where we're going today is we're going to look at these two qualities. You saw them on the video, Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity. Those, even though you might be accustomed to that idea in the God-man Jesus, those two ideas are not usually ones that you put together. They're usually very distinct. But in Jesus, they come together. And what we're going to see today, not only did Jesus' deity and humanity intersect, but what comes as a result to them is a brand new product, and that of empathy. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. Look in your notes and on the screen. Every week we have a now what idea. What am I supposed to do with this, uh, with this text? And here's, our today. here's ours today. Demonstrate a Jesus-like empathy to the people in your world. That's our takeaway. That's what we're to do. Let's dive in. Number one in your notes, Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% God. You're open to the book of Hebrews chapter one. I'm going to read just the very first words of this, uh, this book to, today. Chapter one, verse one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven." So right out of the gate, the author of Hebrews, like we said, you might not think of Hebrews as a book about Christmas very often, but right out of the gate, the author says, God is a God of revelation. God has been speaking, he's been communicating, revealing himself to humanity, and he's been doing it through lots of ways, primarily through the prophets. Remember, a, a brief definition of a prophet is one who speaks for God, one who represents God to the people. That's what a prophet did. So God said he used these prophets 
to communicate his truth, but now in these days, he's communicated, he's revealed himself through his one-of-a-kind son. He upped the ante, changed the game, and now he's actually sent Jesus into our world. This son, he goes on to give some descriptors. What, who is the son and, and how is he different from the prophets? He goes on to give some lists. He says that he was appointed heir of all things. That's not too unique when you think of what a son would, be, would have that uh, relationship or that prestige with a father. But we have to remember that God is the creator of all things and therefore has entrusted them to his son. It goes on to say God made the universe through Jesus. If you were with us in the months of September and October, we walked ourselves through the book of Colossians. And if you remember Colossians 1, there's powerful language there about how this idea that God, that God spoke or God communicated, God created the known universe through the Son. So that's reiterated here in Hebrews 1. It says that Jesus is the radiance, meaning literally to shine from the glory of God. What God's glory looks like is Jesus. And then this powerful phrase, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. The exact representation of God's being. And it's as clear as it can be regarding Jesus's unique deity. He fully demonstrates God's essence. The Greek term there for exact representation would have been the idea of, of the imprint on a coin. Just like today, if you look at your quarter, you get out of quarter, you'll see George Washington there. The imprint on a coin bared a, uh, a leader's, a, a Caesar, a king's um, a resemblance. Now we look at that and go, well, obviously, you look at your quarter, that's not, I mean, it looks like whatever George Washington must look like, it looks like him, but that's not him. But in the Greek idea, the reason why that, that uh, impression on the coin was so important the reason that it would bear the likeness of the leader is that it's saying, based on my leadership, based on my authority, based on my position, this coin has value. It bears my image. It's the exact representation of who I am. Therefore, all of my being, all of my authority goes with it. So Jesus is the exact representation. If we were to ask the question, what does God look like? How does God treat people? How does God respond to certain situations we can inevitably say like Jesus did? He's the exact representation of God. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. That's another type of reference that we saw in Colossians 1, that in him all things hold together. So here's what I want you to see today. There's no other being, no other character in scripture that ever is referred to or described like this God-man Jesus. He's absolutely unique. There, there were people that God used to do amazing things, but they were always flawed people. Every time we read in the old covenant, we'll see again and again people who were marred by sin. There were unique people that God used, like we said, as prophets to be spokespersons for God, but they were equally flawed. The Old Testament account gives us the narratives of their lives. But as the author of Hebrews goes on to say, there, there are even other types of beings that are supernatural, but they're nothing to compare with. They're nothing on par with this Jesus they're simply messengers. That's what the word angel actually means. They're supernatural messengers that God sends to aid humans, but he sent his one son to save humans. So if you wondered today, if you're here with us and you wondered, does the Bible ever explicitly say Jesus was God? 
not only here, but especially here, and other texts like it, know that it does and know that he is. It's not hinted at, it's not a slight reference, it's not a quick mention, but in places like this in Hebrews 1, Jesus is clearly articulated as being God himself. And look what the author of Hebrews says next. Look at the next part. After he, Jesus, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There's maybe two words to synopsize that statement, mission accomplished. Jesus accomplished what he came to do, to provide purification for our sins, and then he sat down at the Father's right hand. Not just God among us, meaning not just that God lived among us, but he saved us. He rescued us by purifying us. He was, and what we're going to see today, this, this important idea, Jesus was a unique high priest. Unlike any high priest who'd come before or any that would come after. Providing purification for our flaws, not by some sort of a, an offering of an animal, but the offering of himself. If there's one thing we know when we look at the Old Covenant, what we see again and again is we see that these animal sacrifices were always band-aids over cancer. They never met the need. They never completely ever dealt with sin. Everyone who offered them knew, I'm only going to be back here next week or for some of us tomorrow or for others of us in an hour or so. Okay, this is never going to be the cure. This is never the solve because I'm offering this animal, but it is a sign, it is a, a, an image, it is a picture of the fact that there needs to be something better, something complete that really will carry away the weight of our sin, the guilt of our sin. Everything pointing to Jesus. The role of the high priest will be significant today, and what we're gonna see, we're gonna see that, the, and if we said a minute ago, if a prophet represents God to the people, the priest is just the opposite. He represents the people to God. So imagine, if you're understanding the role of a, of a high priest, imagine the stage filled with other people and the high priest in front representing this group of people to God. This is what the Bible says Jesus. He fully fulfilled each of these roles, prophet, priest, and king, but today related to priest. Jesus was the ultimate high priest one aspect, though, that we often minimize as we talk about the deity of Jesus, one aspect we often minimize, though, is not his deity, but his humanity. And I want to push you a little bit on that today. It leads us to our next point, number two. Jesus is 100% human. Jesus is 100% human. Now, for those of you doing math right now, you're confused because you have a 200% being. And I want to say from the very beginning today, we're going to read this next, don't go there, but also don't go to the idea that he's half of half. Well, he's 50% this or, or, or he was kind of fudging. He was all God, but he kind of pretended to be none of that. Jesus is unique and unlike anyone. And because of the supernatural being that he is, he does break our rules, as it were. He does do something that we can't fathom and have a, a fully God, fully man, perfect sacrifice. But we'll see how his humanity is important. Look on, I'm gonna fill in the gap in a minute, but we're skipping to Hebrews chapter two, looking in verse 10. It says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, I love this word, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and watch this, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For it is surely not uh, angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Let me catch you up to what's happened in between. So we started with the first three verses of Hebrews 1, then we jumped to Hebrews 2.10, what's going on in between. Well, the author of Hebrews begins making this argument and saying, because even the readers might have been confused, well, angels, and, and anytime we read in the Old, Old Covenant narratives, when an angel appeared before people, they were deathly afraid. These were supernatural, immensely powerful and even beautiful yet beings that cause people to fall on their faces and hope not to die. As powerful as they were, the author of Hebrews says, but angels are nothing compared to Jesus. And he gives all these former covenant quotes, noting that angels are merely messengers of God, but not to be confused that they're somehow uh, on par with or some even better than this man, this God-man that was going to come and invade our world. So the author's making these clarifications and then he moves us into chapter two and we see that we pick it up from there. It talks about this Jesus's humanity in detail. I love that word. Jesus, the pioneer, the, 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 the trailblazer of humanity's salvation was made perfect, how? In suffering. Not made perfect by just the experience, made perfect in suffering. God knows experientially firsthand what it means to hurt. The author was already made much earlier the fact that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. And now we know that almighty God knows firsthand suffering and pain. Then we read a clear statement that Jesus shares the same family as us, that those he made holy and those that he calls brothers and sisters because indeed we are. God is the one who developed the rules and you need to know that. As God was speaking creation into existence, unflawed, unmarred, pristine, just as he planned at creation, he knew he was giving humanity the choice to choose against him and he knew they would. So as he's speaking creation into existence, he knows full well he's going to send his one and only son into the ultimate fray to be this atoning sacrifice for our sins. And watch this. It was God who established the bounds. It was God who said, if humans are going to fail and live according to their own rebellion, it will be a human who will have to save them. You didn't make the rules, neither did I. God made the rules himself. And as a result, God knew from the very beginning there would need to be a pioneer. There would need to be a trailblazer who would come and bring salvation. One who would walk in our shoes, one who would know what it is to live out a human existence on this planet. We see more of a rationale of why Jesus had to share in, in our humanity. It was required that we have a champion, 
that we have one from us who would defeat the very thing we feared most. The passage says that so clearly, held in slavery to the fear of death. Something no human being is going to cheat. It's clear later on in Hebrews, it's appointed once for man to die and then to face judgment. So we know this reality is coming. Every time when I do a memorial service, I often, well, I just said every time and now I say it often. We'll say it this way. I often share this statistic that just helps bring us into focus. 10 out of 10 people die. Now that is, when I say that in a memorial service, not only do people logically know that, but then they feel it because they know why we're here today. And the reality is, is that we do, we have a common enemy in sin and death. And because we all know that's a fate that we're going to face, apart from Christ, it only does bring fear. This text says that Jesus was sent into the fray so that he would liberate us, save us from what had enslaved us. The author connects the dot back to the fact that Jesus didn't do this for angels, for messengers, but he did it for Abraham's descendants, for us, for people, humanity. And then we see the clarity of why Jesus needed to walk in our shoes. It would take a human high priest, one who represents the people to God, to truly represent his own kind before a holy God. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way. That line is so powerful to me. The basic qualification of a high priest is one that is able to identify with, one who belongs to those he's representing to God. So maybe there's another way to say it in your notes and on the screen. A high priest has to stand among before he can stand before. A high priest has to stand among the group of people he's representing to God before he can ever stand before God on their behalf. This reality is what Jesus came and absolutely perfectly filled. So the quality of Jesus' nature, that he was 100% sin-free human. Listen to that phrase again. He was 100% sin-free human. You in the chair you sit in, me on this stage, we're 100% sin-marred humans. We, we came into this world, we've talked about this so often, we already are spiritually dead on arrival. We are born with and then we exhibit the traits of a sinful nature. That's the one thing that was different than Jesus' experience. Human, that's why we, even as we sang the song today, if you've never understood, what's the importance of the virgin birth? Why does that even matter? Why is that such a big deal? And the reason it's such a big deal is Jesus is born without a fallen sinful nature. So think of it this way, when we talked about God speaking creation into existence, he puts Adam and Eve in a garden and pre-fall, they were 100% human yet without sin. That's the best way to think of who Jesus was and how he walked this planet, 100% human yet free of a sin nature. That was his experience, that's how he walked. Now I want you to think of this today. Many of you have grown up in a church environment like I have, and from a, the time you were very young, I loved it today, uh, a friend of mine was sharing what he was going to this next hour. Your kids that are in first through fifth grade today have been hearing about this great power of Jesus' deity and humanity. And you're saying it's so cool to be able to tell their parents that's what they're hearing about today too. But as we were talking about it, and as we were looking at this and, and thinking through this concept, 
We're processing the idea that those kids, if they're gonna hear that through, in first through fifth grade, that Jesus is 100% God, it is likely that like some of our experiences, they will grow up and when someone were to say, Jesus said he was 100% God, they'll say, and? That's not a bad thing, but now watch this. Let's think about the people in your relational world, in their relational world. And think about it when someone that we know of in this inland empire says, I'm God. Those are the people we put in a place and we forget where we put the key. We're kind of scared of what they'll do because they're obviously not thinking in ways that are appropriate or true. So it's interesting that as you embrace the deity of Jesus, which I want you to, you can easily come to some place where that just seems like no big deal. It's a big deal to the people in your relational world who are yet unconvinced of who Jesus is. It might need to be thoughtfully communicated, not in any way minimized, but to say, I know this sounds probably weird to you, but the Bible teaches that Jesus was 100% God. That will blow their minds. But I want to transition. For those of us who have that kind of growing up and posture and belief, it's the other side that's actually more tricky for you. This part that we're looking at right now, that Jesus was 100% human. That's actually for you a much more challenging position to walk in. Because you've given it some degree of mental assent. You've given it some idea of, oh yeah, Jesus was very unique with 100% and 100% of these two natures in one being. But have you really thought it through? Like the author of Hebrews really wants us to understand. Have you considered the fact that God, the creator of the universe, walked in your shoes? Have you considered the idea that the infinite limited himself to a finite body? And that's what it meant for him to be 100% human. Do you know then as you begin to process, then think through some of the realities of that. The God of the universe was dependent upon a parent to change his diapers. That's a little weird. Every baby is, but this was no ordinary baby. The God of the universe skinned his knee and smashed his thumb, just like boys do. This one really ought to help you give some a gratitude for what Jesus has done in your place. The God of the universe went through puberty. Thank you, God, for doing that for me. The God of the universe was tired the all-powerful God grew tired and needed sleep. The all-powerful God was hungry and needed food. He experienced his creation through the lens, as it were, of the created. Now, I loved in the song that we sang today, it wasn't created, he was begotten, but you get what I'm saying. He walked in these shoes. He didn't fake it. Being 100% God did not mean he faked his 100% humanity. He did it and he did it for you. That's why there's such power when we read Paul's account in Philippians 2. Look on the screen, beginning in verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Watch this phrase, something to be used to his own advantage. Something to cling to. 
but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I would say to you and to me today, value in a fresh way, value in a new way, what it meant for Jesus to become one of us, to not fake being human, but being fully human as we are. And that uniquely qualifies him as someone who gets it and who understands experientially what it means to go through it. And I wanna show you why that's so important. Number three in your notes today, the intersection of Jesus' deity and humanity produces his empathy, produces his empathy for us. We're continuing in the very next words of Hebrews chapter two, verse 18. Because, talking about Jesus, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, it's almost like a bookend idea, literally two chapters over. It's almost like the flow of thought continues. For we do not have a high priest, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I said it earlier, what we're gonna see throughout this series called Intersections is that when we take two realities of what happened at Jesus's advent, in this case, God's deity and our humanity, when those two things come together at Jesus's arrival, a new thing happens as a result. And today what we see is Jesus's unique empathy. He actually gets it. And I want you to see the value and the power of that today. He answers the question that so many others had. And I think a common human question, like for people who would at least have a deist view, there's probably a God. I think that they all have a collective question, the question you might have had before you put your faith in Jesus. God, what does it mean what does it mean, how, were, how would you know, what if God was one of us? What would that be like? Here's that question put to music, take a listen. Just a stranger 
Now, I know I'm being incredibly edgy sharing with you a song that came out 23 years ago. Okay, like, wow, that's crazy. Right off the radio. Well, the classic station for sure. But I will tell you this. I remember as a youth pastor, I heard that song. And, and if you think about the lyrics that you just were reading and listening to, you'll notice almost the entire song is questions. Except for the bridge, everything is a question. What if? Is it like this? And I love this song, and we never call it a Christmas carol, but I think it's a great Christmas song because it's asking all the right questions. What if God got it? What if he could relate to what I go through and to what it's like to be a slob like one of us just waiting on the bus trying to get home? I remember the first time I heard this song, my heart just kind of leapt because she's asking, and by the way, Joan Osborne didn't even write the song. It's another guy who had just put it to pen, and I was reading about his whole idea of venture of writing that song, and it was powerful. It was just a gut level, God, do you understand? And I remember the first time that I heard it, I just sat there, what if God was one of us? He was. He was. I can answer that question. And more importantly than me answering it, the Bible can he was and he does get it. And that's what to me is so powerful. The song's great because it's asking, God, do you even get it? And that's the power of when we understand he does get it, now what? What's the point of that? That's what's wonderful about the passages we've seen today in Hebrews 2 and in Hebrews 4. He does understand our condition, frailties and suffering that we face. He didn't fake his humanity he wasn't protected from all the challenges. Did you see? Because he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Jesus didn't just walk the human experience. We read in the Gospels, he was tempted by Satan himself, yet was without sin. And so we have one who's an empathetic high priest. The next question that prompts then is this, why is that kind of empathy so important? Why do we care if God gets it, and if God knows what it's like to be us. But I think it's simple. It gives him the ability to speak from a place of authentic understanding versus guessing what it must be like. In your notes, Jesus' empathy gives us an assurance that he does get it, that he's experienced it and can help us get through the temptation we face now. Think of some of the examples of people in your life when you even think about you share a human experience, but let's say you're here today and you're able-bodied and yet you're interacting with someone who is disabled. 
Do you understand what it's like to be in that chair or to use those crutches or whatever the disability is to get through a day like that? I would even say in our culture today, if you're a man, can you understand the challenges of being a woman? I would say if you're thinking, if you live in the majority of whatever culture you live in, do you understand what those who live in the minority go through every day? And even in our own humanity, that breaks down because I would say, I can know some things about, but I've never walked in those shoes. So even my empathy is limited in understanding. That's the challenge if we go, well, I can wonder, I can guess. Jesus doesn't wonder and guess what it's like to be one of us. He walked in our shoes. He knows experientially what it's like. Think of on the other hand of that idea. Think of someone who's walked the road of cancer and think of someone who's just received the diagnosis. Think of the power of that empathy. Think of that person who's just received the diagnosis and and has this connection to someone who's already been there and done that. Think of the power of being able to go to them and say, hey, real life, what's chemo like? Hey, I have questions about what I'm about to experience. You've walked through something similar. What could you tell me? Think of the safe place that cancer survivor is for the person just to share. This is what I'm walking through and this is where I'm feeling. I don't know what to do with it. Those are powerful. That's a powerful resource. Here's my question to you. Have you ever thought of Jesus through that lens? You see, we think of Jesus with lots of titles, and they're all appropriate, they're all correct. He is King of Kings, He is Lord of Lords. He is Savior, He is Shepherd, He is Light of the World, He's all those. But what Hebrews has told us today is He is brother. He is your brother. He's walked in humanity like yours. And so when you think about being tempted, When you think about suffering and pain that you go through, have you ever once thought that Jesus is that kind of resource that the diagnosed person has in the one who's walked it? Jesus, what can I expect with the temptation that I'm struggling with now? What do I do with that? Jesus, what's it like to be able to be face-to-face with suffering and be able to keep trusting God and walking through it. Jesus, I know that you can relate to this humanity that I'm walking through. I just want to say some things that I know you'll understand. Have you ever looked to Jesus to be that kind of resource? Because the Bible that you've looked at today in Hebrews 2 and 4 communicates he's that kind of God. He was one of us. He understands. He walked it. The truly amazing part that I want to finish with today is not only can you relate to, can you enjoy, can you grasp and hold tightly to Jesus' vertical empathy for you, but what does that look like horizontally? What about the empathy that you can give away because of the empathy you receive? Just like we talk about the love of Jesus is the kind of love we can give away because of how much he's filling us up with it. The same is true of empathy. Now, I want you to think. Think of the reputation of Christians in America today. The thing we are not most well-known for is our empathy. True? 
And you might say, well, Todd, those are unfair stereotypes. I get it. I hope that none of us are living the stereotypes that Christianity has in most of our culture, but I will say this, we're surely not known as those who are empathetic, typically those who are judging. And so I would just say to you, think of, think of the people in your relational world. I'm not out to break a stereotype across the country or around the world. I'm out to live out a Jesus life in front of my people, the people I do life with. So when your neighbor loses someone close to them in death, you can empathize because you've lost someone close to you. When you have a family member who has a child who's living rebelliously off the rails, your kids have been rebellious, you can empathize. When you have someone in your relational world who's being tempted and they're failing, you've been tempted and you've failed too. You can be empathetic. This is a gift we have because of the way that a God who understands our frailties, our suffering, our temptations, we're able to give that away and be empathetic in other people's lives. That is a powerful thing. In your notes today as we finish, Jesus provides you with an example that you can model. As he is empathetic to our plight, so you and your humanity can and should be empathetic towards those in your relational worlds. We close today with this as Jesus' deity and humanity intersected, allowing him the ability to become our empathetic high priest. Thank him. This Christmas season, thank him for the fact that he gets it. And then in the same breath, be sure to say, and Jesus, give me an empathetic attitude, posture, experience towards those in my world who need it. Here's our now what idea for this week. Demonstrate a Jesus-like empathy to the people in your world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today looking at this powerful section of scripture from Hebrews, looking at how both of these realities of who Jesus was, who he is, his deity and humanity all put into one person. We thank you that he was this complete package. We thank you that your deity broke into our humanity and as a result, God, you have empathy for us. You've walked it. You've experienced it. God, help us give that empathy away. You might be here today and you would say, well, Todd, I've actually never responded to the whole reason that we talked about Jesus' mission accomplished. He came and he made himself as the ultimate high priest. He made himself the offering to God that would forever turn back the curse of sin, would forever heal and forgive and you would say today, I've never responded to that invitation. I have great news for you. You can right here and right now. A is to admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B is to believe. Jesus lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that what Jesus did enabled him to be the only savior available. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I trust what you did at the cross in the empty tomb. I trust it was enough to bring forgiveness for me. I want to live my life living according to Jesus' way, his example. I'd encourage you, if you've never made that decision before, make it now. This Christmas will be so absolutely upside down different from anyone you've ever experienced. Because you will know, you will know this great Jesus we're talking about. 
Father, we love you. Help us live lives this week that live out of the intersection, that live empathy in our worlds. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.